Hello, I'm Laura Arnold, and I want to welcome you back to Deep Dive, the podcast where we dig into the complex issues that drive our work here at Arnold Ventures. In these last couple of weeks of this historic 2020 election, the top of the ticket continues to dominate the conversation. Biden versus Trump is what captures most of the headlines. At Arnold Ventures, we're paying close attention to a number of down-ballot races and state ballot initiatives. And at the top of that list is California's Proposition 25, which proposes to end cash bail in California. The outcome of this ballot initiative could very well determine the future of cash bail nationwide. Today, I'm talking with two people who are at the forefront of the fight to end money bail in California. Lenore Anderson, president of the Alliance for Safety and Justice, which is the advocacy organization that's taking the lead on Prop 25, and California Governor Gavin Newsom, who's a key partner in the effort to pass Prop 25. We'll explore with Lenore the details of the bail reform fight in California, and then we'll speak with Governor Newsom about the political environment and what it'll take to end cash bail in his state. Uh, So we have a lot to cover, so let's get started. Lenore, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start by doing some level setting. Maybe let's start with how bail works currently. So you get arrested, the, the police stops you, they, they take you into the station. Theoretically, you get arraigned some short period of time after that. And that person, uh, that judge, that official says you, your trial date is at some point in the future. The question then is what happens to you as the defendant from the time of arrest to the time of trial. So, and that's where bail comes in. So what does the judge do at that point? Uh, it d- depends on the state, uh, but in most instances, judges have what's kind of referred to as a bail schedule, which is they evaluate uh, financially uh, what it would take to assure your return to court. That bail money is kind of considered an assurance that you'll return to court. The vast majority of people entering our criminal justice system are living in poverty, which means those bail amounts cannot be paid on uh, their own. And so then as a defendant, you have to go to a bail bondsman. That's right. right? And, um, And what happens then? Well, what the bail industry does is those bail bondsmen will say, we will pay, you pay 10% to us and we'll pay the rest so that you can get out of jail. Even for the vast majority of people, 10% is also financially insurmountable. So for most poor people who are in county jails awaiting trial, they can't even afford that 10% and they languish in jail until their trial date. And in fact, uh, currently 60% of those incarcerated in California approximately are either awaiting trial or awaiting sentencing Is it right to say that probably the majority of those are people who are poor and are there only because they couldn't make bail? That's correct. For the vast majority of them, a bail amount has been set and those individuals can't make that bail amount, so they sit in jail. For those who do work with the bail industry and come up with, scrape together that 10%, uh, the reality is even for people who are released through this money bail system, many thousands of these individuals end up going into insurmountable debt, uh, an inability to pay back uh, bail bondsmen for uh, the amount of money that is owed. And so we see an unfair and discriminatory system, whether you are languishing in jail because you can't afford bail, or you're able to scrape together enough to get out and end up in long-term debt. 
And Lenora, what do we know about the impact of the bail system on communities of color? We know that it's extremely discriminatory. Uh, the vast majority of people who are entering our justice system, we see disproportionate rates of arrest, disproportionate rates of overcharging uh, that impact communities of color, especially African-American and Latino communities across the country. And then we see bail amounts being set higher for African-Americans and Latinos than they are for their white counterparts. And we know that over 40,000 people currently are awaiting trial in California jails at a cost approximately to the state of California of $5 million a day. So, so it's not a, not a small amount of money. And that's the cost to the government. Can you talk about the cost to society at large and to the people who are locked up for these weeks or months on end? Uh, we see a situation where people are more likely to lose their homes, to lose jobs, uh, even lose custody of their children. This is an extremely exploitative system. Uh, we also know that uh, what happens for people who are in jail pre-trial simply because they can't afford bail, they are more likely to be convicted, more likely to be convicted of crimes they didn't commit, more likely to plead guilty to th crimes they didn't commit just to get out, and also more likely to suffer long-term health consequences because of that extended exposure to jail. Sloaner, with so many people being subject to cash bail requirements, it sounds like we're talking about significant amounts of money. What do we know about the size of the bail industry? The bail industry in California is enormous. Uh, we're talking $14 billion in bail bonds that have been issued by the bail industry in just the last year. We're talking about California representing 25% of the bail industry's business across uh, the United States. So clearly the bail system is broken. In 2018, California decided to take this on. Talk about what happened in 2018, what the legislation that was passed tried to do, and what the bail industry did. In 2018, then-California Governor Jerry Brown signed into law Senate Bill 10. Senate Bill 10 was a historic development in California. This is a bill that prohibits the operation of the for-profit and predatory bail industry in the state. And it's a bill that will totally transform pretrial practices. The bail industry opposed this reform every step of the way. <laughs> Just about everything they could do to try and prevent the legislature from passing this bill, uh, they tried to do. When unsuccessful, when the bill was signed into law, within weeks, the predatory bail industry pooled their resources and went out and collected enough signatures to do what's called a referendum. It costs millions of dollars to collect those signatures. This is not a very easy lever to pull if you want to challenge a bill in the state of California. But the bail industry, within weeks of SB 10 being signed into law, spent literally millions of dollars to collect those signatures and create a referendum. That referendum is now Proposition 25 on the November 2020 ballot. And the question that's being asked of voters is, shall California enact this 2018 law or not? Yes or no? So, Lenore, it's, it's easy to understand why the bail industry is opposed to this, but in fairness, it's not just the bail industry. 
that's opposed to Prop 25 and SB 10. Some other groups that one would expect to be on the reform side, on the pro-kill cash bail side, are actually opposed to this legislation. Can you talk about where this opposition came from and what the nature of the dispute is? Absolutely. One of the big challenges when you're talking about ending money bail, getting rid of an entire system that has been in place for generations, there's got to be something else that determines who gets released uh, pretrial and, and who does not. But essentially what the concerns are when it comes to what you replace money bail with, it has to do with risk assessment instruments. Usually uh, when you don't have money being determinant, if it's not the size of your wallet that's going to say whether or not you can, can stay in jail or be released, then it's going to be some sort of assessment as to whether or not you're a risk to be released. Well, there's quite a bit of controversy in the world of how you determine that risk. Risk assessment instruments have been a source of great debate among criminal justice reformers, and that was demonstrated in this. The other area of concern was judicial discretion. Can we trust judges to make better decisions through a non-monetary system than we see them making in a monetary system. So those were some of the big debates that led to a number of uh, progressive reformers deciding that they weren't comfortable with the language that was in that final compromise bill. So Lenore, here's what I'd like to do, give you a chance to respond to what I understand are the key arguments against Prop 25. All right, so here, so here it goes. So argument number one that I hear is that as drafted, this bail reform law just gives judges too much power to detain people before trial. So if people aren't automatically released, you're subjecting people to the inherent bias of judges and prosecutors, and that bias will result in actually incarcerating more people, not fewer people, than under the cash bail system. So somebody who could have gotten out on bail is now suddenly going to be detained because the judge has more discretion under this rubric than under the current system. So there's been a number of independent studies, independent studies on uh, what the likely impacts of uh, Senate Bill 10, now Proposition 25, will be. All of the independent studies that have been done conclude that pretrial detention in California will go down. All of them conclude that you will see especially large drops for people who are facing charges for lower level offenses. There's, there's no question that racial bias exists at every stage of the criminal justice system. That, that's unquestionable. The question on the table, however, is will this drive pretrial detention up? And there's no independent evidence that it will do that. Argument number two that I hear very frequently relates to risk assessments. You mentioned those a little while ago, Lenore. The allegation is that risk assessments are inherently biased. They have bad inputs. Criminal justice data is proven to be flawed. To cite just one example, minorities are disproportionately arrested. If you have a risk assessment instrument that relies on prior arrests as a data point, then obviously the output is going to be as biased as the input. So the allegation is that implementing a risk assessment just perpetuates systemic racism rather than ending it. What's your response to that? So there's no question there's reason to be concerned about the perpetuation of racial bias by way of the use of risk assessment. Uh, we should be concerned about the perpetuation of racial bias no matter what we do in the criminal justice system. In this instance, what we have 
is a scenario where the risk instrument itself is not the final say. That risk evaluation goes before a judge. So there's that one piece of oversight. The other piece of oversight that exists here is in annual reporting on race data. There is a companion bill that was also signed into law, SB 36, that requires annual reporting on race impacts as it relates to pretrial detention decision-making. This is publicly reported data. This is the first time in the country that this is being required by law. That is an incredibly positive step in the right direction. Full disclosure, as many of you know, Arnold Ventures is very much invested, if you will, in risk assessments. We designed the public safety assessment that's used in many jurisdictions, uh, including some jurisdictions in California. And we are very interested in this question. We're very interested in the question of racial bias in testing and validating the tools and understanding how the tools are used, how the tools uh, evolve, and how do we constantly need to continue to validate the tools so that they are as useful as we believe that they are currently. Now, the argument that gets the most airtime is, of course, the argument relating to public safety. So how do you answer the allegation that if you eliminate bail, we'll all be less safe because people are getting cut loose without any obligation to pay bail? Well, it's been extremely unsafe uh, for generations to allow people who are impoverished to languish in jail and risk instability economically, socially, and risk great danger to the lives of their uh, families and communities. We've also seen a lack of safety associated with people who are wealthy enough to just buy their way out of pretrial and either uh, go on to continue to be a danger or uh, face very little accountability or consequence for their act of uh, violence or harm to other people. This uh, bail reform in California is not the first bail reform in the nation. So we do have some data points from other states. What do we know about states like New Jersey and New York and jurisdictions like Harris County, which have done those things, have eliminated bail? Well, what we know is that much of the hysteria that is bantied about prior to the enactment of bail reform doesn't bear out. It it doesn't come to fruition. In fact, uh, there's a lot of evidence that smarter use of incarceration and reduced incarceration is actually correlated with reduced crime, not increased crime. It's a mythology. Um, it's a mythology that's kind of driven much of the over-incarceration over the last several decades in the in the country. But it's this mythology that if we keep people incarcerated, then somehow communities are safer. But it's just not what the data shows. Your organization, Alliance for Safety and Justice, of course, started in California, but you work nationwide. You currently have campaigns in Florida, Michigan, Ohio, Texas, Illinois, and I'm sure you've got many states in the pipeline. What would happen if Prop 25 fails in California? If this fails, if if Prop 25 fails, we anticipate that the bail industry will not just be emboldened in the largest state, California, it will be emboldened in other places as well. There's been so much powerful and important attention paid to how discriminatory and dysfunctional pretrial systems are across the country. There's been great progress made in many different states. We don't want to see that progress go backwards. This would not be the time to start to see repeal efforts show up all across the country. 
Eleanor, these are obviously very complicated issues, and I so appreciate your time in discussing them. I have one last question for you. Tell us why you believe that the citizens of California should support Prop 25. Prop 25 is historic. Prop 25 will be a huge opportunity to completely transform pretrial justice in California. For the most important reason, it gets rid of this predatory industry that has exploited uh, low-income communities and communities of color for decades. Above and beyond getting rid of the predatory uh, for-profit bail industry, Prop 25 also prohibits all monetary conditions on people in the pretrial stage. And what that means is you can't levy fines or fees. You can't make make people pay for their pretrial services, pay for their electronic monitor. This is a national first. So you're getting rid of the bail industry. You're prohibiting fines and fees from being levied against people in the pretrial stage, no matter what. And you're also implementing for the first time public review of race data public review of how our pretrial system is working. That is huge. This will open the door. We will know so much more a year from now about where we need to make improvements to continue to build a fair and effective pretrial system. Well, best of luck in the effort, Lenore. And uh, again, we appreciate your time on Deep Dive. Thank you. Thanks so much for talking to me. Governor Newsom, welcome to Deep Dive. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. So lots of transformative work uh, in California, in criminal justice. Why do you support Prop 25? I think it's the right thing to do. Progress. I'm for progress. And in some ways, I I, I miss being an advocate because there's a purity of cause from the outside. You hold hands, talk about the way the world should be, and then you have to get in there and you're accountable and responsible for making progress. You got to create conditions where you can actually get things done as opposed to talk about it. And so, look, I, I, I recognize I was deeply involved as lieutenant governor helping support what was originally the legislation uh, that has now become a response to this referendum on, on Prop 25 it was SB 10 and followed the debates and the contours of the debates. A lot of my friends at the ACLU uh, expressing concern at the time that it didn't go far enough. At the same time, it went farther than any other state in the country. And we were able to move the ball forward legislatively, which gives us a chance to come back and, and in a non-ideological measure, be open argument and interested in evidence and make adjustments in real time. Only this referendum got in the way and put a pause for two years. And now we've got to fight that back. But it's fundamental that we make progress. And it's fundamental to me that we push back against the for-profit bail bonds industry and advance this cause. I wonder if part of the sort of segmentation of the of uh, the civil rights groups in California is rooted in the fact that, you know, it's California. It's supposed to be super progressive. No, I think it, 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 it's, it's a great question. And I think that's right. And by the way, that's an important dialectic. I mean, in, in that friction, that, that energy is, is incredibly important and it, it stretches our capacity and it, and it creates coalitions that expand our ability to, to move farther than we even could have without that. I just think sometimes we get in our own damn way and then we create arguments that our opponents take and that they manipulate. And that's exactly, by the way, what's happening with this initiative. I mean, if this initiative, if it goes in the wrong direction, this setbacks the entire cause. And, and these guys are back front and center of the bail bonds industry in control of people's fate and their futures. And, and that would be profoundly, not just disappointing, but devastating to hundreds of thousands of lives that will be torn asunder 
because of this miscalculation. And we won't be able to fix it legislatively because the way that the bail bond industry has drafted this, we won't be able to go back and do anything similarly to what we did to advance the cause to lead the nation. And by the way, we lead the nation. SB 10 led the nation further than Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, and other states in New Mexico, et cetera. So I, I get the I get the you know perfect, uh, but I'm you know a little Voltaire. Let's not make it the enemy of the good. And and it sounds as though uh, that is part of a part of your mantra as governor in criminal justice reform. You've achieved all of these incredible uh, criminal justice reforms for Californians, and many of them were bipartisan. Is that right? Yeah, a lot of them are bipartisan, and uh, but none of them are easy. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a stubborn reality. I mean, this again, this state. I'll repeat it because it's really important. We led the nation and sort of the lock them up and, the, and three strikes you're out is sort of a proxy, not literal, but figurative mantra uh, and, and really led to this over incarceration, the mass incarceration. And, and, you know, here's a state leading on it, higher education and the conveyor belt for talent that, that, you know, finally experienced something we all feared. And that is we are investing more in our prison system than we are in our higher education system. And so you get, you got to dismantle that and you have to do it pragmatically. You have to do it surgically and strategically, but I'll, I'll put up the, the reality in the last seven, eight years, the last few years of governor Brown's term, what we've been able to do legislatively and otherwise in the last a couple of years, I'll put up against any state in this nation, and that's progress. And it's a flywheel. And and you know, I just again, what a what a damning reality we may face if we fall short on this. Using the arguments that our own coalition has used against us, that have been weaponized now by the for-profit bail industry, that could set back this cause for decade. It would be a real shame. Do you think there's also something about the political climate that we're living in? So is that. Is that part of the issue of, of the polarization in California? And are you seeing that in the in the bail debate? No question. But the, the irony of it is <laughs> this reform is a pro-public safety reform. I mean, it's the perversion of this entire debate that there's no risk assessment. It's just about wealth, not culpability that shapes outcome. So you could be rich and completely guilty, but just have the ability to pay for your freedom. And you could be poor and absolutely innocent. And you're not. I mean. What, that's a perversion of what public safety is all about. In fact, if there's an initiative that Republican Party should embrace, it's this initiative, if indeed they're sincere about a pro-public safety message. So there's this, there's sort of this disconnect, right? Somehow the bail industry has been able to co-opt this message, as you say. Well, I think we're doing, I mean, by the way, that, that, that broadened coalition includes our Republican-appointed chief justice of the California Supreme Court who really helped create the conditions legislatively where we were able to, to get SB 10 down to Governor Brown's desk for his signature uh, and the incredible work the Judicial Council has been doing, not with a partisan uh, or an ideological lens, but a public safety lens and a justice-oriented lens. So look, I, I think that, that's the clarion call. I, I, what I've loved in the last decade is seeing people like Newt Gingrich leaning in to some of these things. You're in Texas, seeing a lot of Texas elected officials, Republican Party leaning in as well. And, and they may come from a different perspective, not a social or racial justice perspective first, but certainly from a fiscal perspective and just looking at the absolute absurdity of wasting tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars incarcerating people for no public benefit whatsoever. What do you think happens if Prop 25 fails. It's a huge setback. 
I mean, it, to me, this is one of the most important civil rights, racial justice issues in our nation. Look, if, if people see California, this big blue bastion falling short on something so foundational, fundamental, that would, that would be a profound statement. And, you know, we, we love to say, you know, the future happens here first and, and in terms of screwing things up in many respects uh, and also trying to fix things in other respects. And so we have a unique responsibility to, to get this thing done and, and, uh, and to get this over the finish line. It is a fact that somebody will commit a crime when out when released on a condition or released uh, as a result of risk assessment in a non-bail system. Do you think that the, the movement is ready to answer those questions? I, I coincidentally, just happened to be coincidentally, just spent the last few hours with my parole team going over commutations, pardons, but also my weekly parole. Uh, that, that's a reality of every decision we make or decisions we don't make as it relates to reversing decisions that come from different state agencies. So the answer is yes, if we maintain this, and that is humility in the face of the opposition, in the face of these realities. One has to be humble. One cannot assert anything but a recognition of the fallibility of all of our points of view as it relates to the issue of criminal justice. And and if, if people hear that, then they're more willing to accept, all right, this is an exception and you're going to adjust and you're going to tack as opposed to, you know what, get over it. That's just one person. And, and then all of a sudden people go, well, no, you're not, you're not listening. That you're, you know, so I think everybody wants to be connected. Everybody wants to be respected, but all of us want to be protected. And, and so it's a foundational principle and we need to be sober that as reform oriented people that, that we may not get it right and there may be setbacks and, and we have to own up to that and we have to take some account and responsibility, be humble. It's a balance, right? It's a balance between personal liberty and fiscal responsibility. Yeah, I mean, this is, look, it's our, it's our biggest fear, right? I mean, we've, with, with so many of the reforms, we've stacked on top of each other in the state of California the last seven, eight years. Some people to say, you know, just give it more time. Let the system absorb these reforms before you move on to the next thing. But so it's, again, back to this, this pressure points, people with their moral authority, demanding more people in positions of formal authority. And then the constraints of being in office and the realities of, of, of the give and take and the legislative realities of, you know, how, you know, of the consequences of moving too fast on a myriad of other related issues that could be impacted by those. So we can't be myopic. We can't be living in our silos. And we really have to, I think, look at these as multi-year agendas and have people's backed, even if we feel they didn't do it soon enough, fast enough, uh, or could have done it better. What final message would you deliver to California voters as they consider Prop 25? I mean, consider consider this fact. If, If you were arrested for something, whether you did it or you didn't do it, uh, and someone else was arrested for the exact same crime, uh, and they had a a higher account balance in their ATM than you did, and they're back home with their kids or back home in their community or work, and you're still stuck in jail, consider that reality. And now consider that reality for hundreds of thousands of people across the state that are facing that perilous fact. 
uh, every single day. It's a matter of justice. It's a matter of fairness. It's a matter of decency. And I, I can moralize the racial components, which are just so self-evident in this respect. But the bottom line is this is a pro-public safety initiative. It's about risk. It's about really assessing the vulnerabilities of someone actually committing a crime versus wealth. And that, to me, is, is foundational in a democracy. And I think this should bring everybody together across differences. Gardner, thank you for spending time with us on Deep Dive. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for the reforms that you've spearheaded in California. We'll look forward to staying in touch. More to come. Thank you. More to come. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Deep Dive with Laura Arnold, produced by the Arnold Ventures Philanthropy. If you'd like to learn more about the organization, visit arnoldventures.org. By maximizing opportunity and minimizing injustice, we make change for the greater good. Again, that website is arnoldventures.org. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you again next time on Deep Dive.